the wisdom of God. Every word that God speaks is wise. Nothing but the greatest wisdom can come from God. The word that he gives us is, is a word of wisdom, that we have a whole book of wisdom. Words of wisdom are given to us through prophecy, and they are whispered to us by the Holy Spirit into our hearts and into our minds. But it is one thing to receive a word of wisdom and another altogether to act on it accordingly. The fact is that we are constantly doing things that we know we shouldn't. We are constantly doing things, even in the flesh, that we know are bad for us, be it smoking or drinking too much, overeating, driving too fast, sleeping too little, procrastinating, watching too much TV. We all know that it is making us sicker and dumber and wasting our lives away. We know this. And if you follow TED Talks or read too many blogs, you'll really know it and you'll have great illustrations of why it's so bad. Maybe you've thought about it. Maybe you've thought of a plan to stop doing these things and the other habits that are killing you. But you still do it. I still do it. I've got a good plan for not doing it. But I still do it. Worse than this, we are constantly doing things that we know are contrary to the will and word of God. And that stuff doesn't just impact us now. It impacts our eternity. And we know it. But we keep doing it. God is wise. All wisdom comes from him. And just as he made us in his image and is now transforming us into the likeness of Christ, we too can be wise. We can think like God because he made us to and he is now transforming us to. To be wise means more than receiving a word of wisdom from God. It means that our minds and hearts have been transformed to think wisely. So a truly wise person does not need God to tell them what is right and wrong. A truly wise person knows this intrinsically because their hearts and minds have been transformed to think like God. In fact, the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2.16 that we have the mind of Christ. You have the mind of Christ. I have the mind of Christ. The problem is I don't think with it very often. No, I default back to my original setting, which is to think with 
Clay's mind. Yay. God describes Solomon in First Kings as the wisest man who ever walked the earth. The wisest man who would ever walk the earth. And yet Solomon made decisions in his life that were more than unwise. They're inexplicable. They're stupid. They were destructive. And they were willfully disobedient. Let's have a look at Solomon's story in the book of First Kings from chapter 3. Please turn there if you've got some scripture with you. First Kings chapter 3 from verse 3. Solomon showed his love for the Lord by walking according to the instructions given him by his father David, except that he offered sacrifices and burned incense on the high places. The king went to Gibeon to offer sacrifices, for that was the most important high place, and Solomon offered a thousand burnt offerings on that altar. At Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon during the night in a dream. And God said, ask for whatever you want me to give you. Solomon answered, you have shown great kindness to your servant, my father David, because he was faithful to you and righteous and upright in heart. You have continued this great kindness to him and have given him a son to sit on his throne this very day. Now, Lord, my God, you have made your servant king in place of my father David. But I am only a little child and do not know how to carry out my duties. Your servant is here among the people you have chosen, a great people, too numerous to count or number. So give your servant a discerning heart to govern your people and to distinguish between right and wrong. For who is able to govern this great people of yours? The Lord was pleased that Solomon had asked for this. So God said to him, since you have asked for this and not for long life or wealth for yourself, nor have you asked for the death of your enemies, but for discernment and administering justice, I will do what you have asked. I will give you a wise and discerning heart so that there will never have been anyone like you, nor will there ever be. Moreover, I will give you what you have not asked for both wealth and honor, so that in your lifetime you will have no equal among kings. And if you walk in obedience to me and keep my decrees and commands as David your father did, I will give you a long life. If, note there is no assumption from God that giving Solomon unheard of wisdom would directly Produce righteousness, obedience. God knew that being wise doesn't make us automatically righteous. In 1 Kings 4, 29, 34, we read, God gave Solomon wisdom and very great insight and a breadth of understanding as measureless as the sand on the seashore. Solomon's wisdom was greater than the wisdom of all the people of the East, greater than the wisdom of Egypt. He was wiser than anyone else, including Ethan the Israelite, wiser than Heman, Kalkol, and Dada, the sons of Mahol. 
and his fame spread to all the surrounding nations. He spoke 3,000 proverbs, and his songs numbered 1,005. He spoke about plant life, from the cedar of Lebanon to the hyssop that grows out of walls. He also spoke about animals and birds and reptiles and fish. From all nations, people came to listen to Solomon's wisdom, sent by all the kings of the world who had heard of his wisdom. Wow. Wow. It'd be great if the story ended there. Maybe let him build the temple. That'd be good. But maybe we stop the story there. Chapter 11. King Solomon, however, loved many foreign women besides Pharaoh's daughter. Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonians and Hittites. They were from nations about which the Lord had told the Israelites, you must not intermarry with them because they will surely turn your hearts after their gods. Nevertheless, wise Solomon held fast to them in love. He had 700 wives of royal birth and 300 concubines, and his wives led him astray. As Solomon grew old, his wife turned his heart after other gods, and his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord his God, as the, the heart of David his father had been. He followed Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, Molech, the detestable god of the Ammonites. So Solomon did evil in the eyes of the Lord. He did not follow the Lord completely, as David his father had done. On a hill east of Jerusalem, Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the detestable god of Moab, and for Molech, the detestable god of the Ammonites. He did the same for all his foreign wives, who burned incense and offered sacrifice to their gods. The Lord became angry with Solomon, because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice. Although he had forbidden Solomon to follow other gods, Solomon did not keep the Lord's command. So the Lord said to Solomon, Since this is your attitude, and you have not kept my covenant and my decrees, which I commanded you, I will most certainly tear the kingdom away from you, and give it to one of your subordinates. Later in life, Solomon looked back on his days and he reflected on his choices. He captured these thoughts in the book of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes chapter 1 from verse 16. I said to myself, Look, I have increased in wisdom more than anyone who has ruled over Jerusalem before me. I've experienced much of wisdom and knowledge. Then I applied myself to the understanding of wisdom and also of madness and folly. But I learned that this too is a chasing after the wind. For with much wisdom comes much sorrow. The more knowledge, the more grief. And then on in chapter 2, verse 15. The fate of the fool will overtake me also. What then do I gain by being wise? I said to myself, 
This too is meaningless, for the wise like the fool will not be long remembered. The days have already come when both have been forgotten. Like the fool, the wise too must die. Throughout Ecclesiastes, Solomon describes the pursuits of his life as folly. The wisest man ever lived a life of folly. How can that be? It doesn't make any sense. Solomon had wisdom, true godly wisdom, but they didn't save him from a life of immorality and spiritual adultery. So what hope do we have? Solomon wasn't the only wise person who struggled with this. The Apostle Paul wrote in Romans chapter 7 from verse 15, I do not understand what I do, for what I want to do, I do not do, but what I hate, I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me, for I know that good itself does not dwell in me, that is in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to, but the evil I do not want to do. This I keep on doing. Sound familiar? Paul's reading my mail here. This is my constant struggle as well. I'm constantly doing the things I know I shouldn't do and I don't want to do in one part of myself, but I find myself continually doing it. James 1.5 offers some hope. It says, if any of you lack wisdom, you should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. But he clarifies in verse 22. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in a mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it, not forgetting what they have heard but doing it, they will be blessed in what uh, they do. This goes for the word and terms of the book. It goes for the promptings of the Holy Spirit in our heart, his voice in our mind. It goes for the law that has been written on our hearts that reminds us. It's not just enough to know. We've got to do. James had more to say about wisdom in chapter 3 from verse 13. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let them show it by their good life, by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. But if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice. But the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, 
then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. Peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness. So essentially, what good is wise thinking without wise actions? Paul prayed for the church in Ephesians chapter 1 verse 17. He said, I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. And then in Colossians chapter 1 from verse 9, Paul prays, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you. We continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, so that you may have great endurance and patience. So that, so that means there's a reason. Wisdom is given for a reason, so that we may know God and so we may live a life worthy of him. If we're not growing in righteousness and maturity and our knowledge of him, then whatever wisdom we think we have is folly. And it's potentially destructive, as this is the kind of wisdom that can puff us up with pride. My contemplation on these matters over the last couple of months has led me to uh, to believe there are three conditions that are essential for us. Three right conditions. Right knowing right standing, and right living. Right knowing, or right thinking. This is the wisdom that God speaks about throughout the Bible. It means knowing what we should do. It means knowing God's will, his heart on a matter. It means knowing what is good and bad. It means Thinking in the manner that God would. Right standing is how God sees us. Right standing is our position before God. Right standing is being forgiven and accepted by God. This is a gift paid for by Christ, offered freely by the Father to us. When we are forgiven, when we are redeemed, Standing before him, we are acceptable. It doesn't mean that we're not a mess. It doesn't mean that we're pure and completely righteous. It means that God chooses to see us as such because he sees Christ or chooses to see Christ when he looks at us. Before God, we are right. The last is right living or righteousness. Right living is the fruit of God's wisdom activated in our lives to produce choices, obedient choices, godly choices. Righteousness is a combination of God's grace, 
the Holy Spirit active in us and our active participation through obedience, through stepping into his will. Things would go so much better for me with God if he did everything. Wouldn't it though? Be great if I could, there's a prayer I could pray. I don't know, maybe it's in a tongue I don't understand, but if I could pray a prayer and he zaps me, he like, the Holy Spirit powers me and just fixes my mess. Just reprograms me so I can just let him do his thing and then I'll be, I'll be sweet. I'll be sorted. That would be convenient for me. Unfortunately, he doesn't seem that interested in what is convenient for me. And in his wisdom, he has determined that the process of my sanctification, my transformation into the likeness of his son is something that I have to choose to do every step of the way. He'll show me the path. He will give me the wisdom I need, the wise words, his words. He will encourage me and support me. But I need to take the steps along that path every day. And every time I take a step off the path, I'm walking away from the goal he has for me. Not sure about this plan, Lord. We're not actively righteous unless we can bend our will and the desires of our flesh to be conformed to the wise and righteous will of God. And to do this, we need to be able to control ourselves. Solomon couldn't. Wise as he was, I'm not sure that I can either, and so I have a problem. Can you control yourself? The fruit of the Holy Spirit listed in Galatians 5 does not include wisdom. We don't need to be the wisest people in the world. We need to be loving and joyful, long-suffering, kind, good, faithful, gentle, and self-controlled. This is fruit that the Holy Spirit produces in us. We don't need to be able to fathom all mysteries. We just need to know God's will. His will, which he will reveal to us as we need it. And then we need to do it. Sounds so simple. Having all wisdom means nothing if we're not going to live by it. We need to live according to the wisdom, to the revelation that we have received. And that is enough for today. Live by what you've received today. Now, this is a mistake that I've made constantly. Uh, I've just had this insatiable desire for more uh, knowledge. I want to understand everything. I want to mass everything, get it in my head. I want to have an answer for things. Sometimes it was more about just having the knowledge than it was actually making a difference in my life. I don't know what the goal I was aiming for was, but it was about more knowledge. But this knowledge 
whether it was even right or wrong, certainly wasn't producing uh, a work of righteousness in me. wasn't transforming me to be more Christ-like. And it really didn't necessarily make any sense to me. I could spew out textbook answers to what seemed like puzzling theological questions, but that didn't bring life to anyone. It certainly didn't bring life to me. It's only through having children that I've come to see (laughs) why the Lord uses children as an illustration regularly in terms of discipling us and raising us. I can't give my children all the knowledge and all the rules and all the laws and then expect that to transform them. I need to pick one thing. I give them one thing that I want them to work on, that I want to work with them. And as I see that change them and shape them, we can then build on that and I can give them the next word for the next day. The next thing that we're going to work on together, be it with their schooling, whether it be with some skills they want to develop, if it's something to do with character, it's what is enough for today. And what I've found in my own discipleship, my own walk with the Lord, is that he wasn't giving me wisdom. I was searching for knowledge, and I would gather whatever I could find. But what he had given me was what I needed for today. The other stuff was meaningless until I could embody, I could capture, I could be transformed by the seed that he had given me. And we we see this in uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Paul's talking to the Corinthian church, saying you've got all this knowledge, but you're still not mature. You need to be uh, working on the fundamentals before you can receive the things of maturity. And see, I was making that mistake as well, jumping to the end, but not actually experiencing the work that God would do through me from the wisdom he actually was giving me. So you can go out there and accumulate, study, get whatever knowledge and wisdom you want for yourself, but that's, that's not from him. And that's not going to do anything for you. And it was ultimately bad for me. The difference is allowing him to be our teacher. Let him reveal what he wants to. Let him guide us. In fact, he says, Jesus said in John that the Holy Spirit is our teacher. He will reveal all things. He will remind us. Striving for our own spiritual education. It's not a Holy Spirit-led activity. Following is a Holy Spirit enlightened activity. Follow him. Let him reveal. Unfortunately, he seems to want to reveal things I'm not comfortable working on at the moment. There's other stuff I'd rather look at, Lord. And that that problem there is uh, at the heart of why we procrastinate. We know what we're supposed to do. But we would rather do other things that are easier or more fun than the things we should be doing. And that's the same in my spiritual life. There's the things that God is instructing me to work on that he wants to walk me through. But I want to go to the fun stuff, the easy stuff. I want to tick some boxes, get some runs on the board. But he knows me like I will, I don't know, I'll ever know myself. He knows me. He knows what I need. And he reveals what I need. He gives the wisdom that I need for today. And I might not get anything else until 
I've worked that first bit through. I'm ignorant on many matters of faith and theology, but I'm not embarrassed by that. I'm embarrassed by the knowledge that I do have, but do not live by. It would be better to know less and live more than know more and ignore it. This is the knowledge, the wisdom that puffs us up with pride, and it does not make us more Christ-like. Knowledge can be great, but it can also be a vanity. Paul commended the Corinthians uh, in chapter 1 verse 5 that they had been enriched in every way with all kinds of speech and knowledge, but then admonished them because their knowledge led to dysfunction, not wisdom and growth. In 1 Corinthians 13.2, we read, I have, if I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. I believe that we need knowledge, but we need love more. And the knowledge we need is the knowledge that leads us to life. Everything else is folly. God gives us wisdom for a reason. Gives us wisdom that we would lead a godly life. Knowledge is meaningless if it doesn't produce righteousness in us, if it doesn't sanctify us to be more Christ-like. And God is the one that has that knowledge. The problem that we face is that the wise path, the wise choices, they are not usually the easy choices. The wise choices are not the ones that lead to instant gratification the fruit of many of the wise choices we will not taste until eternity wise choices are often if not always the choices that are opposite to our flesh and this is where self-discipline comes in unlike wisdom self-discipline is a fruit of the spirit Self-discipline is that ability to rein in your thoughts and your actions, to take control of your emotions, your mouth, your hands. In The Cost of Discipleship, Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote, The real difference in the believer who follows Christ and has mortified his will and died after the old man in Christ is that he is more clearly aware than other men of the rebelliousness and perennial pride of the flesh. He is conscious of his sloth and self-indulgence and knows that his arrogance must be eradicated. Hence, there is a need for daily self-discipline. This daily self-discipline is what Paul describes in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 from verse 24. Do you know, do you not know that in a race all the runners run but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. 
Therefore, I do not run like someone running aimlessly. I do not fight like a boxer beating the air. No, I strike a blow to my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. Self-discipline, self-control, temperance. This is something that we need to practice, that we need to train for, that we need to build up. It is something we need to persevere with. An athlete is the illustration that Paul gives us. And there is much to be learned from this, this example. An athlete sets a goal and works unswervingly towards reaching that goal, chipping away at the goal every day. The prize isn't won on the day in the race. The prize is won every day that leads up to that. The the race day is just the icing. It's just the, the presentation of all the work that's gone into that. The athlete chips away, training, bending his mind and body to accomplish feats tomorrow that are not possible for him today. Hebrews 12 gives us more on this. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Run with perseverance. So we've got to persevere. How do we develop Perseverance. James says, through trials. Yay, trials. I'm not, I think, naturally a particularly self-controlled person. And uh, I think I'm pretty low on perseverance as well. And I also a man of prayer and I pray and I ask God that he would help, you know, do a work in me and produce righteousness in me. So not having perseverance or self-control, I'm probably lined up for some pretty serious trials. So maybe I need to tone down the prayer language so he takes it easier on me. It's hard to see the, uh, the trial, the world that you're living in at the time as a blessing, as a work of God. God loves his children. And if he loves his children, anything like I love mine, and I know he loves us so much more, I know he would never want to see his children go through anything if it wasn't for a very, very good reason. And the wisdom I see now is that there is a very good reason for everything he allows me to go through. I can't help but think short term. I can't help but think today, maybe tomorrow. 
But he's thinking eternity. This is a blink of the eye, this life I live now compared to what is coming. And that's where he's thinking. And so in his grace, in his love, he, he allows trial, brings it into my life, discipline so that I can grow, so that I can learn, so that I can be shaped into the beautiful image of his son. He has a vision of me that is patient and kind and generous, loving, self-controlled, and I've asked him for that. I've asked him to do that work in me. And it turns out that the work he does isn't Holy Spirit zap. Sweet, I'm sorted. But it's, it's a long game takes my hand and walks me through what I need to walk through to become who I need to become. Perseverance will get to the goal. The goal we're aiming for is an eternal inheritance. The reward of a life lived for God's glory and purposes. The goal is the transformation into the likeness of his son. And that goal is not easily attained, for we are bogged down not just in sin, as Hebrews says, but also apathy and procrastination. And I think that affects us a whole lot more than it affected the early church. It's a bit harder to be apathetic in the early church about your faith. Because in the early church, your profession of faith could end up in the confiscation of your property, in torture, and in horrible death. Hard to be wishy-washy when there's that hanging over you. Today, people would prefer, the world would prefer that you're apathetic about your faith. They don't care what you believe, just don't talk to them about it. The persecution, if you can even call it that, that we face, it wouldn't make the pages of scripture. But in our heads, our worlds, it feels like the world's against us. But there's no death hanging over us, not here in New Zealand. And so that can lead to apathy. Would we'll you know, chip away, come on Sunday, maybe get along to life group on Tuesday, maybe, try to read the Bible regularly, try to be a good person. I'm sure that'll all add up to a big thumbs up from God. Or is there more? Because I could do that, that's just a few simple habits to get into. That kind of Christianity breeds apathy, and it certainly did in me. In his book, Reasons and Persons, British philosopher Derek Parfit names the urge to, the urge for instant gratification as the fundamental reason why we procrastinate. 
particularly due to the divide we establish between our present and our future selves. He writes, we humans are not a consistent identity moving through time, but a chain of successive selves, each tangentially linked to and yet distinct from the previous and subsequent ones. Bear with me. The boy who begins to smoke despite knowing that he may suffer the habit decades later should not be judged harshly. This boy does not identify with his future self. His attitudes towards this future self is in some way like his attitude to other people. I believe this is true of us and our spiritual resolutions as well and the decisions that we make today. We're not thinking about the consequences of them. We're definitely not thinking about the consequences in eternity We're not even thinking about next year. We're thinking about right now, the immediate. We live in the instant. We need things right now, our food, our communication, our our gratification. We want everything now. This has got to be the most impatient generation ever because technology has developed to the point where we can receive what we want when we want it. We don't have to wait. We don't have to persevere. And so we can't think about a future self, who we're going to be, who we want to be. Or if we start thinking, we can't imagine it, we can't visualize it. And if we can, that person is a stranger. We struggle to identify with our future self, the fully sanctified and ultimately glorified self the self that God wants us to shape us to, the self which is like Christ. We struggle to identify with this future Christ-like self because we struggle to identify with Christ. We struggle to know him. So we can't know who we're going to become, who God wants to make us. And so that brings us full circle Once again, back to what God's revealed purpose for our church is, for the church is, and that is to know him. Knowing him in relationship and through his word gives us not just a beautiful picture of the goal we are striving for, but also the means to get there. This knowledge, this experience motivates us, it encourages us, it disciples us, it sanctifies us, and it makes us truly wise. Wise with the wisdom that we have then become amply motivated to act on. The wisest thing anyone on this planet can do is to get right with God and then to live right by him. That is the summation of it all. This wisdom is found in Christ, knowing him, loving him, getting to know him more every day. 
The knowledge, the wisdom is in him. And we have it already. We need to lay full claim to it. Live by it. Bend ourselves, our fallen nature to him. And allow him to show us the way. Let's pray. Lord, uh, thank you for, thank you for your word this morning. And I know anything wise in this word, Lord, is you. And I pray, Lord, that that word would find a home in our hearts, Lord, that you would plant the seeds deep and continue to water them and, and nurture them. I pray, Lord, this would produce a work in us, a true spiritual work of transformation. I pray, Lord, that you would unlock, Lord, those encumbrances that are holding us back, Lord, from stepping into the wisdom we already have. I pray, Lord, you'd produce this work of self-control in us, that we can bend ourselves to your truth. Lord, I pray I pray for perseverance, long-suffering, that we can stick with it patiently, trusting you, trusting your process till this work is accomplished. Believing, Lord, in your promise that uh, the good work you have started, Lord, you will see through to completion. I pray, Lord, for the continuing illumination of your spirit throughout this week and the weeks to come, that this word would uh, continue to ruminate in us, more wisdom and truth extracted from it. I pray, Lord, that you would give us a greater knowledge, a greater understanding, revelation of your Son, of Jesus Christ our Lord, that we would be able to see the goal that we are aiming for and not just see it, but know him as intimately as we can. Lord, we commit this all to you, believing it is your will to see this so. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. Awesome. Thank you, brother. Um, That message, like all of our other messages, will be available.